Hey everyone, welcome back to A Hole in the Ground. This week we have another academic guest for you, so stay tuned. Hey everyone, welcome back to A Hole in the Ground. This is my co-host Katie Manns. And this is my co-host Sarah White. We've got our usual menu of Lord of the Rings breaking news, and then we have an interview with my dear friend Rachel, who is a fellow academic here in Scotland, and she's going to be talking to us about Tolkien and madness. Uh, And then we've got a shadow fact. Yeah, so let's uh, jump right into it, friend. Let's talk about the news. Yeah. Um, First of all, it's a bit of a sad week in the Tolkien world because we lost a light. We lost Christopher Tolkien. He died at a very... um, a very, you know, prodigious and happy old age. Seems like he had mostly a, a wonderful, comfortable life. And we can't we can't thank him enough for everything that he published after his father's death. And, you know, we wouldn't I, it really struck me that even the Silmarillion, like I even forget that sometimes that he he is responsible for the Silmarillion. Yeah, the the work that he did on all of his father's papers, and especially you can really see it as when you go through, um, for example, the New Baron and Luthien volume, you can see the kind of mass of almost manuscript like work that he went through to produce these. And we owe him we owe him a great debt. We do. Um, so that's one bit of news from the week was a pretty big thing i saw lots of people lots of posts and he had even made sort of the major news art you know major news outlets etc in a sort of a more uh light-hearted bit of news ian mckellen has released these sort of unearthed lord of the rings diaries that he was writing when he was um on set and at the beginning even before he got on set of the production of the Peter Jackson trilogy. Um, and they're really lovely. Uh, he's a great writer and they're fun to read. They read just like blog posts, it's just like somebody's blog. And I won't go into everything about them. There's an article on Polygon re-referenced by an, um, an author named Karen Hahn, and you can just Google this and find her. But it's just really sweet. It's If you're really into it, if you liked the extended editions, if you enjoyed looking at sort of the making of stuff, then this is just a fun, it's a fun little extra layer. And there's two moments that I really liked. One is that one of his first like aha, aha moments is when he hears the Howard Shore score. Uh, so uh, makes sense. One of one of my favorite things was um, his description of Christopher Lee. Mm. <laughs> and hope he doesn't have his fangs. He, exactly. He said, he said, spread across the black throne under Orthanc's vasty roof. He looked like King Lear in age and authority. <laughs> when he Tell speaks, me. all I see and hear is Saruman, my old associate gone wrong. Ooh, and then, so except cool. once he rounded off a speech with a snarl. To be within four feet of a Lee snarl is unsettling, and I'm glad he wasn't wearing fangs. The entry ends with, I like making Saruman laugh. (laughs) It's just a delight. Really, really adorable. It is sweet. It's really, really a joy to read. I I was just smiling the whole time I was reading them today. The one other, my favorite other part is that at one point, there's also photos. So you should know that there are photos that I don't think have been released before. And at one point, Ian McKellen is wearing a shirt that says, women want me, fish fear me. And it's just a guy holding a fish that he caught. (laughs) 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 Which I'm just like, I am dying (laughs) what a fit oh my god he is a gem like a true gem they're just very peaceful good vibes good very good vibes coming from this blog and these photos it also has the look of like a very 2003 year old blog which is a real treat 
Yeah, it's all we could really ask for. Exactly. And you know what? Guess what? We have more, though. We've been given more this week by we the, have. God, the God of news, and that is casting. Yeah, we've got so much casting. Let us be the first to say we are happily eating crow. Yeah, we about- are. <laughs> we really well, are. Well, we don't actually, well, with some caveats, I will say, because, so we are eating crow about what, Sarah, would you say? I would say about the diversity of the cast. Woo, thank Christ. <laughs> We're so happy. Uh, I'm so happy. However, uh, okay, so a little backup, I suppose. Amazon did one of its sort of Twitter dumps. They're, they clearly are using this Twitter account as sort of the main vehicle of, of communication with the fandom. And even with the news, it seems like it's a very Trumpian Twitter account that they have. And so yeah, it's a little bit weird and like unnerving. <laughs> Do you ever go on there and see like the comments they've made and you're just like, what, where, who is running this? It's very creepy. I, I don't like it. Um, but so the Panopticon, the the cube has released released this week, like a kind of a collage of photos of a bunch of the cast who uh, we are seeing that it, it is a group of people who are much more diverse than we had hoped in age, in size, uh, in nationality, in ethnicity. It seems that this is a cast that is drawing from a lot more beauty and diversity in the human race than we might have expected. So we are eating crow happily. However, we don't know who they're playing. Yeah, all, yeah. Right? There's not very much information at all about who people have been cast as. But I mean, I'm I'm feeling slightly more optimistic, perhaps. I don't know. I think so too. I think so too. I don't know. Again, this is how we end everyone. We're always just like, uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think if we're going to be perfectly honest, it doesn't really matter. We're going to, we're always going to have a little bit of hope in our hearts, no matter how horrible it looks, and we're probably still going to watch it because yes, I, mean, I agree. They would have to make things pretty abysmal for me not to go through with it. Oh, I didn't watch the last Hobbit film. Yeah, that's that's a fair point, actually. I did, never, but I've never done it. Can't yeah, do it. I, I did, but I'm not gonna watch it again. Um, actually, no. <laughs> the thing is, okay, so I would, I would actually not watch it if I started watching it, and it was like, if it was too much like Tolkien, if that makes sense. Like, because right now it seems they're going in a really different direction from, for example, the Peter Jackson films, and even from mm-hmm. the content of the books. But if they if it somehow was like too too Tolkieny and they hadn't gone their own direction, I think that would actually concern me more. Me too. It'd be not fun. I want an adaptation. I want you to take a piece of art and have a perspective about it and make artistic choices and make your own piece of art from it. Yeah, like, exactly. Do something interesting. Yeah, do something fun. Do something new. I've been distracted because I was Googling one of the cast who was very attractive. Oh, uh, He looks like... I don't know. He's very hot. I'm trying to see what else he's been in. Oh, he, well, shit. He was in The Mandalorian. Fuck. <gasps> oh, who was he? Quinn? Kin? Chapter 6? The Prisoner? Oh, I haven't, I haven't actually watched yet. Mandalorian. I have watched it. I've only watched up to episode 4, though, so I'm much behind the rest of the universe right now. Okay, well, when you get to episode 6, look for um, a person named Quinn. Okay. He's very attractive. Do. All right. Anyway. Well, I've got something to look forward to. <laughs> um anyway uh what else yeah i i'm happy about the casting news i'm happy to get more info um you know it's 2020 now tiktok yeah exactly um apparently they're also meant to start filming uh within a month i believe is what i read so uh we might be starting to get some some fun new bits and pieces coming through i know that in my mind i know i I believe that the show wants to be like game of thrones like, I think that is the business model of this show. Um, and in Game of Thrones, I know that there were just constant, like, drone, like, attempted drone photography, like, 
raids basically by the paparazzi and press. So maybe we'll get the same sort of stuff coming out once they've all, you know, taken the flight to New Zealand and are starting this thing. So yeah, like you said, maybe we'll get some more, some more crumbs from this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all we can do is hope and stalk a whole bunch of people on Instagram. Yes, exactly. That's right. We have a, a bunch of new people to follow. Like, like, you know what we should do? We should do it on the podcast account so I don't have to see what they think about anything. <laughs> oh, I hate other people. I hate other people so much. That's my problem with, well, I love the Bachelor Bachelorette franchise. Shout out to Finding Love. Um, and I always end up finding these people on Instagram from the Bachelor Bachelorette world and following them. And so stupid. I should stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad idea. Oh god. Anyway, that's the news I would say this week. Anything yeah. else? No, I think of? I think that's that's the news. Um so let's turn now to our guest. This week our special guest is Rachel Foster. Rachel is a dear friend of mine that I met uh when I moved to Scotland. We were trying to figure out. I think I met Rachel at church. Is this right? <laughs> yes. I am almost sure it's right. Yeah, pretty close. And Rachel, remarkably, um, I surround myself with apparently with people who like Tolkien stuff, but Rachel did a master's degree in fantasy literature at the University of Glasgow. And one of the things she worked on was Tolkien. So we're very happy to have her on the pod. And she knows a lot about things that I know very little about. So I'm looking forward to learning things. Oh, me too. This is going to be wonderful. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. <laughs> so what we usually... <laughs> Nothing. I was just going to say. So something we often do with with guests when we have them on is we go through Luke Shelton's Tolkien experience questions because they are a really fun way to get through the kind of info that we like to talk about, um, about people's experiences with Tolkien. So uh, the first thing I think we would ask is how how did you first get into Tolkien? Oh, my. Well, <laughs> that's a kind of loaded question for me. Because I got into Tolkien when I did my dissertation. That's when I got into Tolkien because I found his concepts fascinating. Um, but my family have a renowned history of all hating Lord of the Rings, loving The Hobbit, <laughs> but hating like with a fiery, fiery passion Lord of the Rings. So I was just telling Sarah before I, I, I came on the podcast that um, there was one time I, I, they all say, right, they all say, oh, this is just the descriptions and it's really long and and then you meet Tom fucking Bombadil. It's never Tom Bombadil. Sorry, I can't swear on this podcast, right? Absolutely. No, yes, please. We don't give a shit. Okay, great, great. So it's never Tom Bombadil. It's Tom fucking Bombadil. And then I once had the gall to say, oh, well, actually, I, I quite like Tom Bombadil. And uh, my sister went off on like a 10-minute spree of, I'm Tom Bombadil, up a tree. I'm a massive fuckwit. Look at me. And just rhymed all these like, stupid, insane rhymes that weren't very good. Uh, just mocking <laughs> the fact that I even said, oh, well, I actually thought Tom Bombadil was all right. So, so my introduction to Tolkien... Uh, really was like the hobbit when i was younger and then avoiding lord of the rings like the plague and then getting to my master's degree kind of it, it does it, it pains me to say it in a way but you know you can't really understand a lot of 20th century fantasy without tolkien so even if people are reacting against tolkien it's still about tolkien um, everybody's usually got some reaction oh yeah no absolutely but the thing is people are like 
oh, well, I didn't like Lord of the Rings, so I'm going to do something completely against Lord of the Rings. But you then you read it as something as being against Lord of the Rings, almost, if that makes sense. Like, it's so important in the canon. You can't not study it. And, and yeah, and I have actually grown to really like it on a lot of different levels. I think it's very, very cleverly done. I think it's really interesting. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a stereotypical fan, but I, I do enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, this is something I remember talking with you about maybe last summer even, uh, where we were talking about a bunch of books that were uh, really pivotal to my kind of growing up years. Uh, Tolkien, obviously, and Ursula Le Guin and people like that. And they were all people that you hadn't read uh, until, you know, at least high school. And I just found it so, I don't know, it was shocking to me in a way, because there were so many other things I probably, I mean, I'm probably shockingly out with my reading as well because there's a lot of stuff that you've read that I haven't read yet like uh Woman in White for example which I know you've been going on about me reading forever but it's just yeah it's really interesting to me how people people get into it um what what would you say your favorite part of Tolkien's work is then as somebody who hasn't grown up with it and doesn't have the kind of you know maybe the childlike glee that some of us do <laughs> um when it ends I don't know <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> Sick burn. No, I am joking. I'm joking. Um, okay, so like, but, sorry, that's really harsh. Um, that's also not true. My favorite part of talking is the hobbits because I am a hobbit. Yeah. Like, other than having mm. a long pipe, which I smoke, uh, I, 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 I would love to be a hobbit. I love my food. I love my creature comforts. I love like gallivanting around the country and and I just love the personality of the hobbits as well like Pippin is my favorite character like I was I was again I was saying to Sarah like <laughs> earlier we, we, <laughs> we were talking about Pippin and you know and how he just it, like seems to thwart himself on a regular basis in such like an easy way so like the stone which is literally found in like Saruman's lair of evil and Gandalf's like don't touch the stone don't look at the stone don't do anything and at night Pippin's like I think I'm just gonna take the stone I'm just gonna do it <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> go ahead and do it <laughs> just like, jump right in why? why would you do that I mean he is like the Jake Peralta of hobbits <laughs> apart from not as smart which is like my <laughs> ideal so no I probably say like hobbits like they're my fave, which is like it's probably a really boring thing to say, but I just love the way they live. I love the way they are. Like, yeah. wanna marry Sam? Wanna like mm-hmm, be Pippin? Mm-hmm. Probably am Pippin. Like, I I actually feel yeah. most sorry for Mary, and I actually think Frodo's a bit of a dick. But like Sam and Pippin, mm-hmm. awesome. Bilbo also awesome. Bilbo was awesome. Uh, yeah, I think I like I like your ranking. I agree. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, no. I think it's a very reasonable, very reasonable ranking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just Frodo's a bit of a snob, isn't he, really? Yeah, yeah, he... Yeah, always away with the elves, huh? Yeah, but, like, not in a nice way. Like, he's very nice (laughs) to Gollum. Like, really, like, Frodo's best redeeming feature is how he treats Gollum, in my humble opinion. Maybe it's the first time he, you know, finally sees his own... You know, he sees what he could be, so he has to experience empathy, and that changes the way he reacts to maybe he would have reacted to Gollum had he not been changed by the ring yeah no I think that's probably true and I'm sure we will talk about this in a bit later because I don't want to use up all my good madness chat just now (laughs) (laughs) the other question I I kind of wanted to ask was 
whether you would recommend Tolkien's work. Having, again, maybe started not with the whole, oh no, you have to read it, you have to read it sort of opinion. Yes, I, again, I, I would because I think it's been so... In the same way as I would recommend Dickens or Austen or Bronte or, or any of those people, I recommend Tolkien as, as like a form... Like it's, it's so formative in the canon. Like if you are interested in literature, if you're interested in YA literature or fantasy literature, uh, well, Western literature, like, it's it's very important, I think. And I'd recommend it for that. I would also, I mean, it's just so influential. You can't not, but I, I have to say, like, I mean, I think one of the things that really fascinates me about Lord of the Rings in particular, which I, I and something I really love about it as well, is I know several people who hate reading, like, legitimately hate it, and will read Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, you do know this isn't an easy book, right? Like, I could give you yeah. <laughs> so many easier reads that are, like, a lot more pacey and a lot more kind of, in my, in, in like, my words, fun, I guess. And they're like, nope, hate reading. But Lord of the Rings is great. And I'm like, who are you? Like, I, I don't get it. But I also find that fascinating. I just, I find the whole, like, almost psychology of people who love Lord of the Rings and, and the breadth of kind of people who love it, which, which you have talked about on your podcast as well. Uh, just really fascinating but especially people who do not read at all so my my husband who who isn't a fan of reading like loves it loves it has read them all and I'm like but you know if I say to him oh do you want to read this like Edgar Allan Poe short story nope no I do not and you're like oh right okay <laughs> philosophy lord of the rings and economics right yeah that's pretty niche oh wow he's, yeah. he's kind of picked <laughs> the worst things <laughs> Well, yeah. also the hardest thing. I can't get heads or tails of philosophy. No, yeah. I'm not. Oh, gosh. Oh. I'm, yeah, I'm so bad at philosophy. I did a class of it, and I swear, like... My husband loves it, too. Actually, weirdly enough, so does mine. Yeah, weird, right? Suspect. Maybe the, why this is we're all here. Maybe they should do a podcast. Maybe they're all doing a philosophy yeah. podcast, <laughs> and we don't even know. Yeah, no, so, yeah, no, I would recommend... And I... Okay, so to be fair, we say Tolkien's work. I would recommend the shit out of The Hobbit. I love that book. I mean, like for anybody, but but for for Lord of the Rings in particular. Sorry, I'm, I've got kind of Lord of the Rings on the brain, but uh, the Hobbit for everybody because it's just so brilliant and it's so fun. I would probably, I mean, I would probably do the same thing for most people because I think it's actually now that I think about it, it's actually your parents, Rachel, who have put me off recommending the Lord of the Rings to anyone because every time I forget. <laughs> I forget that they don't actually like it. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, something like this and that about books. I'll be like, oh, yeah, Tolkien. And they'll be like, yeah, I don't like it. There's a lot of walking. There's a lot of stuff that I think is unnecessary. Just didn't really get into it. And I'm like, right. Yes. Fair enough. Okay. You hate it. I forgot. Um, I, I think another thing, though, that I think is a bit kind of cruel of people and um, of people who don't like hot Tolkien and can't really be uh, bothered, I guess is the kind word, of getting into it is that like um, I always see like The Hobbit as definitely a child's tale. It's kind of like the pre-war, pre-Second World War, post-Second World War thing, isn't it? You know, you see this kind of child tale and it's a fun adventure and, you know, there is threat, but not really. And then The Lord of the Rings is this like growing up realization that this threat is very real um and the quests are really real and and another thing I, I i do really like about tolkien so i think i think if you are kind of a kind of middling tolkien reader 
like I myself, so not massively enthused. You're like one of those people who will either like love the war stuff, so basically Merry and Pippin's divergence, or you love the Frodo and Sam stuff. And I'm the one who loves the Frodo and Sam stuff. And always people are like, oh, but that's so boring. They're just walking. And I'm like, that's what a quest bloody is. Like, it's boring <laughs> as hell. And, you know, you have time to ruminate. And uh, I, again, I'll talk about this later. But you have time to ruminate and think. And, you know, you're just about the pain in your feet and getting the job done. In something you desperately don't want to do. I found the whole psychology of that incredibly well done and and really really interesting whereas the war stuff i'm just like oh who cares <laughs> i don't care about the history whereas i'm sure if you cared about the history then you would care somewhat but i'm like i don't even know where this is why do they have to go through moria oh yeah i think sarah and i had a different experience maybe because we read it as maybe there's something to when we read it that informs this but all I wanted to do was every location every proper noun that came up I couldn't help myself from flipping to the front and looking at the map or pulling out my appendices and seeing who that person was so much so that it affected my reading experience like I I remember the first time I read it it took me longer than I think I expected I was I don't know maybe 12 or so and it took me quite a long time and I just couldn't stop looking at all the extra stuff, which made me like it. Like all the expanded world stuff was drew me in so quickly, which, and I was the opposite. I loved, I, I couldn't stand the Mary, or excuse me, the Frodo and Sam stuff, although it's changed since I've gotten older. I just wanted to be with Mary and Pippin and Treebeard and Aragorn and, you know, all the lads out on the adventure. And I was the total opposite. It's so interesting. I, uh, I probably did a pretty similar thing to you. Yeah. I, I do want to amend my last statement. The Ents are freaking cool. Like, I did like all the bit with the Ents. But that's also, like, a very kind of isolated, journey-ish part. Those are the bits I like. All the isolation. I'm like, yeah! Into it. War. War. War is war. A lot of a lot of 20th century authors would uh, dispute that and say that was a really insensitive comment, which it was. But I, I just don't find that kind of narrative <laughs> interesting. Um, and that actually kind of leads tidily into um, what you talked about for your dissertation, which was madness. Oh, yeah. Which is not war. No, not at all. And uh, shout out to my bro, Tom Shippey, who writes uh, fantastic Oh, Tom Shippey. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to say, like, I think, shout out now that a lot of my dissertation, like, stemmed from his, like, bounced off his ideas. His was definitely a jumping off point for me. So big, big shout out to him. Who talks about the evil of the ring. You know, he's advising on the new Amazon show, side note. Oh, well, there is hope yet. Is there not? I mean, he's, I think he's got a brilliant understanding of the books, in my opinion. So could you could you just tell our our listeners a little bit about kind of what what you were looking at when when you were looking at madness and madness and fantasy lit? Okay, cool. Yes, I will. I'll try and kind of get to my Lord because my Lord of the Rings chapter was my third chapter in my dissertation. So there's a lot of kind of context and backlog um, to it, which is basically I was talking about physicalizing causation of madness and how that affects uh, the reader and the readership and how it reduces stigma because I looked at post-war fantasy um, so I looked at uh, Shelley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House in my first chapter The Chronicles of Narnia in my second and Lord of the Rings in my third and um, so we I talked about causes that are active and passive and what I mean by that is so active causes of madness are sentient so they think 
in other words they they act on themselves so in the haunting of hill house the house acts in other words i mean it's quite interesting because i don't think it is like a ghostly specter in the house i think it's the house itself and i think there's a lot of stuff in in the novel that that suggests that so you've got this kind of active cause of madness that deliberately makes people mad out of some kind of malignant um, evil and then you've got things in Narnia where main I mean the prime examples really were passive so they're used as tools so they're used as tools to to create some kind of form of madness so you're looking at the Turkish delight that Edmund's given which works as a kind of stupefying drug that makes him not only want more of it but also dob his brothers and sisters in it and give them over to the white witch and the silver chair which is like a political tool as well, because you're, you're literally looking at a prince who is overthrowing his own kingdom and the silver chair is used as a as a harness um, for that. And that obviously flips madness on his, on its head because when he's sane, he appears mad. And when he's mad, he's actually, yeah. So there's that. And then you have the ring in Lord of the Rings, which is fascinating because it acts as both, uh, both active and, and passive forms of kind of causation of madness. Oh, and I, I should stipulate by saying, and I probably should have said this at the beginning, when I when I talk about madness, I'm not talking about certain certain things like depression or anxiety, although those, those can be manifested. I'm talking about um, usually negative influences of behaviour that are uncharacteristic to the characters. So if you're looking at post-war literature, this would obviously uh, match very much with like uh, excessive violence associated with PTSD and depression and all this kind of stuff. So you get to the ring and the ring is fascinating because not only does it think for itself, but it works as a tool, right? This is the whole point of uh, Sauron trying to use it, but it, it thinks. So you have things like Gandalf saying at the beginning that, you know, the ring chose Gollum, it, it chose Bilbo and, and the ring shrinks itself and it makes itself larger. And there are lots of things to do with the ring and that are so interesting. So I, I really talked about that, although there are other kind of ideas of madness um, throughout the Lord of the Rings, but that was kind of the main one. And I just thought it was fascinating, not only how it was used as both as a passive cause and an active cause, but also how there were different susceptibilities to the evil of the ring. So different susceptibilities of going mad because essentially everybody who comes into contact with the ring for, for, for enough time, I would stipulate, encounters some kind of madness. So with Gollum, it comes in the form of addiction, so compulsion. With Boromir, it comes in, a, in violence and delusion. And delusion seems to be the big one, right? And even Gandalf and Galadriel, you see their delusion kind of happen. Delusions of grandeur. Yeah, not only delusions of grandeur, but it's this kind of um, idea of unreason, uh, like this this uh, plausible kind of deniability. Like, you know, if I have the ring, you know, borrow me, if I have the ring, um, Gondor will prevail, which it actually might do, but at what cost? Galadriel, you know, all will, you know, fear me and despair. And I think I'm misquoting horribly, actually, sorry. Um, but, you know... That's not actually necessarily wrong, but the ring comes at a price. Uh, to quote, you know, uh, once upon a time, magic comes with a price, dearie. So, and it does. With the ring. <laughs> well, it does. So, there you go. And it also seems to have a corrupting influence as well. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Corrupting. Absolutely. Uh, so it can kind of destroy 
your mindset but also it, it kind of steers you towards evil i mean that's that's very kind of that that's kind of the most obvious thing but i think the thing about the madness element for me is it's making people not act like themselves or a version of themselves that kind of doesn't quite compute so uh, i i mentioned in my dissertation about a F- foucault's idea of madness and he calls it unreason and unreason is essentially when you lie to yourself at one point he says lying to yourself so much but using kind of this twisted logic to make it seem true so again with boromir like yes but i will win gondor if i get the ring because the ring clearly does this and you're like yes but that's not fully true you're saying that and you're now believing that it's true and this unreason is a form of madness as well so it's it's not only just a corrupting influence it doesn't just kind of make people do bad things like saruman it also kind of destroys their mental state and makes them do weird things like i mean boromir um quite cruelly actually christine brooke rose uh an author and and a critic said that boromir was just a device so that fellowship could break up but I completely disagree with that. I think he's a device to show how the ring does and can corrupt because you obviously you can't corrupt Galadriel or Gandalf. I mean, that'd be a very, very different book. And he becomes violent. And, and at the very end, when he's away from the ring, he goes, what have I done? He has no concept of what has just happened. It has been a total, like almost like a kind of possessive thing. And, and Frodo experiences that on Weathertop as well where he, you know, he, it says very clearly he feels this compulsion to put the ring on. He doesn't think of anything else, which is, of course, the addiction element coming in there as well. But it is this kind of thing that you're not in your right mind, I guess is the phrase. And, and that's really prevalent throughout the books. And, and the interesting thing about making a physical object do that, as opposed to it being genetic or circumstantial or whatever, is that it doesn't actually put onus on the person who suffers from it. It puts onus on the cause, Mm -hmm. which I think is very, very forward thinking for its time, which is just, you know, just after the Second World War. And they were written during the Second World War. It sort of tracks with the the sort of morality arguments that people have and still do employ about addiction, especially, which was what was so interesting to read in your dissertation is the direct links that you make with addiction. And I had always, I had never put them, I had never thought of it that way, which is so, which is so illuminating and interesting to read. Gollum especially shows such clear signs of physical addiction. I mean, yeah, I, I, I feel so sorry for Gollum. I mean, what I think you would both be amazed by is there, there is a lot of critical writing on Tolkien, as you can imagine. Like, I, I probably, honestly, give you a list of uh, academics that that would happily talk about Tolkien all day. But I, I didn't find a single essay on addiction and Lord of the Rings, which I found. I, f- I found really weird. I mean, maybe in passing, but you, I mean, you could write a whole, you could probably actually write a whole thesis on it, quite frankly. But there was nothing. And he's so, dis- he so has the physical side of the addiction. There's even a point. I mean, Sam really doesn't like Gollum. And even then he, he recognises that he's just this poor creature that is enslaved. And it's when he talks about not going without food or water just to get his fix uh, I mean, it's it's horrible, and and critics even at the time would 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 recognise that, and it's like Gollum is is a character you feel sorry for and is redeemable, and of course it, it, he's so redeemable because he he's actually the hero of the book because he destroys the ring. You catastrophe back to on fairy stories, but um, yeah, 
Sam. I want to talk about Sam. Why why does Sam show such a particular uh, ability to resist the ring, would you say? Oh, okay. So this is kind of, for me, this kind of goes to the kind of hobbits themselves. Like, I, I quite like this idea in Lord of the Rings, but you kind of like, this is going to sound really weird, but you kind of have like the peak kind of of their race as they were, like the fellowship. So you've got peak wizard, which is Gandalf, peak human, Aragorn, another peak human, but different kind, because Aragorn is the old kind of man and Boromir is the new kind of man. Or so I understand, right? Is this right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. cool. Peak dwarf, peak elf, uh, and then you've got the hobbits. And the hobbits are kind of useless. Like, I mean, they're even described that at the beginning of the book. Like, literally, Saruman is like, I don't care about hobbits. They may as well not exist because they're freaking useless. And nobody disagrees. The only person who does is like, oh, well, I think they might have their uses, says Gandalf, who obviously, you know, but the elves don't (laughs) care. Nobody gives a shit about the hobbits, right? So they are like the least. um, But it's their humility, I think, that kind of makes them so. So really, they are kind of like, a again, I mean, I don't want to talk about kind of the Second World War too much, but linking back to war. I mean, these are like the ordinary people and the common folk. And and there's a there's a humbleness and a recognition that they won't control the ring and so they can't and so they kind of become the unlikely heroes which is odd because the the poem that is about strider slash aragorn that gandalf writes in his letter the beginning to me is about the hobbits as well i mean they are actually like the unlikely and unsung heroes completely nobody cares about them knows they exist And, and again that's why Sauron doesn't look for them, right? But they don't want to wield the ring. There is no part of them that wants to wield its power. They do not care about power. They do not care about technological advancement. They care about smoking and eating and living their lives, which is why they're perfect to transport the ring because they actually have no, you know, they have no desire whatsoever to wield its power. Even even when they've been out in Middle Earth, then they still see everything and they're like, I just, yeah, they just want to go back to the Shire and everything to be fine. <laughs> I know. I mean, I feel a bit sorry for the hobbits because they're just like, why are we here? Like, for like, literally, as soon as they get out of like Hobbiton, like, or Bree, <laughs> and when they get out of Bree, they're like, oh, this sucks. Like, genuinely, what are we doing? <laughs> like, all of them, like, throughout the entire thing. Do you guys know that show? Uh, and I don't, it, it was a BBC show, so this is. Uh, this might be true. Do you know that show, uh, The Idiot Abroad? Have you ever watched yeah. that show? <laughs> yeah. No, well, I that haven't. guy is just like, uh, how would we describe it, Sarah? Um, it would be like your kind of basic white dude. He's just really, <laughs> really unaware and like culturally like deaf. Yeah, he ha- he lives in his place and he he's not really interested in exploring or seeing the outside world. He's quite content and happy where he is, and you know. And they make him go and visit all these different places. And it's Stephen Merchant and Ricky Gervais are behind oh, us. This is their God, actual friend. I do know this guy. Yes. They just make fun of him. This is the, their actual the friend. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> I've seen. Yeah, I've seen. Clips, but in but... his sort of. In his kind of endearing devotion to the the comforts of home, he sort of reminds me of hobbits like that. Like, he's just like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I got my stuff. Like. I watch football. Like I'm happy. I'm I'm pretty content. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, pretty much. I I'd like to think the hobbits are slightly more cultured, generally. Yes, they are. They are. <laughs> but they, but you're you're right. They definitely you're right, are. 
they they don't they don't want to like they're the kind of people who would like like museums and then be like oh just imagine going to where this place where this art came from nope and then just go home um that's <laughs> yes, what I kind yes. of imagine hobbits to be like but yeah no no I, to- I totally get it and and that's why I like them as the kind of unlikely heroes of the story in the same way as as Bilbo is, but with with Bilbo in um, the Hobbit, they kind of make make fun, and he does a lot of things by accident. And like, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's it's kind of satire. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, they flip that on its head, and it's actually their biggest strength. And so they end up like because because they're not susceptible to kind of they're not privy to I'd say general weakness uh, weaknesses that. I guess the others would have. They are not susceptible to the evil of the ring because they're kind of, in a sense, they're almost more pure of heart. And I think maybe a good example of that too is like, um, you know, when Pippin, after having picked up the rock that he wasn't supposed to, goes to Gondor with Gandalf, and Gandalf is like, okay, we're going to go see Denethor. This is Boromir's father. Don't speak to him about anything that has happened so far. We don't know if he knows if Boromir's dead, all of these things. The first thing that happens, Pippin goes in and he's like, uh, I am so sorry. Your son is dead. Please accept my <laughs> service for life. <laughs> oh. oh, bless Pippin. I know. I love him. I love, I, him. I love him too. I mean, again, it's also kind of like where Gandalf goes away and then like Death as well, like, well, I'm going to kill myself. And Pippin's like, okay, cool. Bye. And then Gandalf comes back and he's like, where's Denethor? And he's like, well, he's just gone to kill himself. <laughs> he's like, no, you, can, you can't do that. And he's like, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. Because Faramir's alive. Oh, yeah, alive. Cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah, let's, let's go get him. <laughs> it, I mean, it's more serious than that, but it basically reads like that. Oh, I love Pippin. This is the Pippin Appreciation Podcast. Yeah, it really is. Like, you're not going to Pippin get did nothing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Pippin for life. One of my favorite parts in the books is when they all make it back to the Shire, and Mary is wearing his garb from Rohan, and Pippin has his white tree ensemble, and they're just kind of like nodding at people as they go past, and everyone's just like, "Where did you go?" Like the upstarts, like, <laughs> and nobody's like, "Oh, like where have you been?" They're like, "Go back to doing your normal thing. We don't want to talk about this because you've gone and done something a bit too out there." <laughs> <laughs> no i know i think another one of my favorite bits is when like all the rest of the company bar like sam and frodo are like running and wondering what's happening at um isengard and they're like oh no what's happening what's happening and like the ants have like torn the place up and like pippin and mary are asleep by a lake or something and they're like hi you two and they're like oh hey yeah, this this thing that happened is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like legit asleep. The salted pork is particularly good. Oh, so, like rolling around and like enjoying life. I mean, I can't remember one of the two, but they're like aware of almost like the utter devastation. The like, important like wizard mon. Why? As an aside to anyone who's listening to this pod, we have been having like the most trouble with the internet today with <laughs> all of our recordings. <laughs> I am not trying to think that like fate is personally against me today, but I do think that. <laughs> I've also not had a great day at work and this is like oh, no. vastly improved it. So whatever. Good. Shut up, fate. You don't count. <laughs> not today, Satan. <laughs> not today, Satan. <laughs> no. What what you were saying um, about Pippin made me think of the stuff that you were saying about Faramir in a previous conversation we were having earlier this week. Oh, I saw your your meme 
on the hole in the ground Instagram. This has got to be the worst trade deal of all time. <laughs> this has got to be the worst trade deal of all time. And I was like, only an idiot like Trump would think that. <laughs> Folks, dad, we hate it. We don't like it. It's very bad. Oh my gosh, yours is so good. Way better than mine. Thank you, honey. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> It's so good. Anyway. It's so good. Anyway, um, so Faramir. I get to talk about him in my dissertation, which is a shame, because really, he is, like, peak human. He is actually better than Galadriel and Gandalf in terms of the ring, because he basically, he meets them and almost at once susses out what's going on. Faramir is, like, very wise, but he's also very humble. He's awesome. And um, and I just love the bit where he, he discovers about the ring and it's quite interesting actually because it says uh here i've got the book kind of open he says kind of a pretty stroke of fortune a chance for faramir captain of gondor to show his quality ha he stood up very tall and stern his gray eyes glinting and then frodo and sam sprang from their stools and set themselves side by side with their back to the wall fumbling for their sword hilts there was silence all the men in the cave stopped talking and looked towards them in wonder but faramir sat down again in his chair and began to laugh quietly, and then suddenly became grave again. Alas for Boromir, it was too sore a trial. So the way Faramir, you know, shows his mettle is in fact by, I'm going to resist the ring. And I think he's like quite excited and he's in, he's so pleased that he's kind of figured out what's going on finally, that he stands up and he's kind of aware of the magnitude. And then Sam and Frodo's reaction is so kind of, aghast and visceral that he thinks oh my goodness what did Boromir do and and he's very aware of his brother's actions as well and he loves his brother and he says that quite a lot but before that scene he's like I, I love my brother but you know he he would do anything for Gondor and I, I'm pleased that he didn't challenge Aragorn and Frodo's like no no he respected him and he's like yeah he might not respect him so much when he actually got here which I think is probably quite accurate and um I mean Faramir is just a legend like peak peak human. I mean, he and he and he really is. I I feel as if um, people do Faramir a bit of a disservice because he obviously doesn't come up until really almost the last third of the books. But he's so important, and he kind of really shows hope for humanity and the nobleness of humanity as well. I think. And I think in another way, he he kind of fills a gap between the kind of well the peak peak human as you refer to with Aragorn but Aragorn is peak human in a way that nobody else can be I mean he's part elf for one thing he's descended from Baron and Luthien like your pedigree can't get much more noble than that and so Faramir is an example of it's not quite the everyman but he is a more human human in, in a lot of ways yeah, and, and that's also quite comforting, I think, as well, to, to, the, to the readership, because he he is clever, he is humble, and he's one of those kinds of things. It's quite interesting, because I think, I mean, and again, very ahead of its time, what you expect a manly man to be is Boromir, but what you actually want a man to be is Faramir. And I think if you're a woman, and I think if you're a woman, Preach. you realise this straight away, you're <laughs> like, yep, 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 Faramir. Like, absolutely all the way. And people are like, oh, but he's a bit. And I'm like, no, he's not. Shut up. You don't understand. He is far less likely to beat you when he's drunk, you know? No, he's wonderful. Um, Yeah, he's wonderful. Yes. Eowyn done good. Oh, yeah, she did. And actually better than Aragorn. Aragorn's a bit boring. He's definitely most interesting in Fellowship when he's like a stranger, like a kind of bedraggled stranger in a pub. That's my favourite Aragorn. 
That is the best. Woods Aragorn, like pre-King Aragorn, is way more interesting to me. As as we've said many a time, the burden the burden of protagonism weighs heavy on him. Yes, I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. that's true. But not for Gandalf. No, he's fine. Yeah, he's he's all right. And he's basically... Yeah, he's... Yeah, he's basically a protagonist. I mean, he dies and comes back. Like everyone else. Apart, apart from Boromir. <laughs> apart from Boromir, but that's because he was played by Sean Bean. Played by Sean Bean. <laughs> the only yeah. reason. Actually, one 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 little moment about Sean Bean's performance that remind that I was reminded of when you were talking earlier is about that moment when he shows so clearly in the way he's acting, the way he snaps out of that bit of madness. Like when he has just confronted Frodo and tries to take the ring from him, and I think in the in the movie they contrive for him to trip over like a something, and maybe oh, it was a big piece of wood. I think he was gathering wood, and he trips over it, and then the sort of physical jolt kind of takes him out of whatever he was in, whatever madness he was experiencing, and he just immediately has no recollection. He doesn't know where Frodo went, obviously, but he he just. He, he can't handle it. He he knows what he's. It almost seems like he knows what he's done in some offhanded way. But his his face just betrays this sadness and remorse so beautifully. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, Boromir is is really a victim of the Ring, and 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 thus his own failings, right? Because this is the thing the Ring kind of brings out the worst, which again relates to mental health in a way, doesn't it? Like um how situations and things bring out the worst and, and, and what they do, like specific things. So for his unreason, it's all about Gondor. For Galadriel, it's all about like her reigning goodness, oddly, over the whole of Middle-earth. Um, and for Gandalf, it's it's almost about knowledge and being the most kind of knowledgeable and powerful being. But I think I think partly because Boromir is so... His kind of motivations are almost like warlike. His is almost a lot more violent. And I mean, also, he's just, he's not depicted as particularly intelligent. I don't mean he's not smart, right? But he's not, he's not Gandalf and he's not Faramir, is he? He's, he's, he's just average. So, so you're like, oh yeah, no, the ring's totally great idea. And everyone's like, no. Yeah. There's, there's also something, there's a dynamic, I think, between Boromir and Faramir and Denethor and the ring that's really interesting because even though Denethor has never, had contact with the ring he's never been close enough to it he is in a lot of ways obsessed with it and he's obsessed with the idea of using it to protect gondor because he sees it in many ways as the only hope for them and he's been holding gondor against the forces of mordor for years and years now um he loses osgiliath all of these things and in the end he i mean he does also go very very mad and i think that boromir is in a way i mean he's driven he's driven to the the council in rivendell by his father's urging in the first place yeah quite and this also brings up a brilliant point about genetics actually doesn't it because um, i mean really before genetics even starts but the idea that you can pass this stuff down whether it's learnt or not behavior and they kind of suffer the same madness and of course um denethor kind of thinks that the ring has taken both of his children in a sense, and part of the reason he goes mad is he immediately goes, "Well, it's my fault." I mean, partly because he's horrible about that. Thar- Faramir, and she, you know, he should feel bad. I was always like, you know, mm-hmm. um, like Zoidberg says, "Your music is bad, and you should feel bad." <laughs> it's like, yeah, you were, you were, you were a dick, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and and that's a really interesting point as well because the, the failings are the same, and even though he is in n- not pro- no proximity to the ring, it still has that kind of corrupting influence from afar and he he goes in the mad in in the end from pure regret and and also it it shows 
I mean, the other very clever thing about about Lord of the Rings and madness is it's not just the ring. I mean, as you say, Denethor goes mad for, for a particularly uh, completely different reason. He thinks both of his sons have died. There is a, a lot of regret, a lot of putting focus on the wrong stuff and realizing that he thinks too late. Um, but then also, uh, I mean, Frodo suffers from PTSD like heavily. I mean, that's why he has to go with the elves at the end of the book. It's not because he doesn't like the Shire. It's because he he wakes up sweating and screaming and 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 he suffers he suffers from post traumatic stress disorder essentially uh and he's just never he's never quite the same after the full, full encounter and and of course it is the ring but the ring is is trauma as well um as being kind of like the cause of madness so it doesn't completely go away and and i guess the same is with gollum as well because obviously the ring is ripped from him and his is as is an addiction but for frodo it's it's traumatic and of course i mean in a way even Gollum dying is almost quite a, a, a like a, a relief, a blessing for the readership because, like, if Gollum survived and there was no ring, he would have just killed himself. Like, I, I don't think there could have been any other. I don't think there could have logically been any other place for that character to go. And so that's, I think that's why the book's so clever. Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, I mean, Tolkien believes in tidy, tidy endings and tidy stuff, but I mean. It, in a way that's quite it's quite interesting what he what he does with frodo because everything seems resolved and then it's so clearly not and i i don't know whether that's i mean i think cynicism is a harsh word i think cynicism is a, is a very harsh word when when somebody's gone through two world wars but i mean i definitely think that's his realism i think of what has happened and it's interesting as well because mary who literally stabs people and is in in the height of war so he actually is in a war situation doesn't appear to suffer from ptsd at all he he appears fine but the ring uh, and so that kind of shows you what the ring does to to a mind on a long-term basis and this is something this is something i remembered from your dissertation as well um was it uh, Croft, who is saying, oh, that one of the grimmest lessons about war is the mental wounds, like, and for example, they use Frodo as uh, an example of the effect of war on the mind, but it's really, it's really not. It's an effect of the ring. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. It's a, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, that's the thing about critics, isn't it? You kind of have to kind of adapt what they say um, or argue with what they say. But yes, and I think that critic is completely right. Uh, did you say it was Croft? I honestly, this sounds awful. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, because it would be good to cite the people I do reference. And Croft did say that about PTSD, and it was very useful. Thank you. Not that you'll be listening, but anyway. Um, but in case you are, um, but no, but it, yeah, exactly. It's not the war that brings PTSD. I mean, I do find that sometimes quite odd with critics when they are like, "Oh well, it's clearly this," and I'm like, "Were you reading the same book as I was reading?" Because I mean, Frodo isn't part. He doesn't. He doesn't actually partake in any war. Yeah, he's he's quite he's quite apart from the war entirely. I mean, he doesn't witness any of the battles, even um, anything like that. The closest he's at war with himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, he doesn't even witness any of the battles. Um, whereas you, you know, you see, like, I mean, Pippin. Uh, sorry, not Pippin. I, he, I've got Piff, Pippin on the brain, and Mary. Like Mary's storyline, I think, is in a way the hardest. Because he's the one that least wants to be on the journey, is probably the most sensible, and in my opinion, gets into the most stuff that he should not be involved in. 
at all. And uh, but but he's he's thankfully fine. But but yeah, you're you're right. It's it's the ring. It's not the war. But I think it, it's still a comment on both, isn't it? Um, but but I also think it's very forward thinking to make it not just about war, to make it about something else entirely, and and living and living either with your trauma or with your madness, and and its debilitating effect on your life. I think is is quite an interesting mm, yeah uh, way to look at it. And I mean, and with all that content there that we've even just been talking about, it's just it's still so surprising to me that there hasn't been more work done on this. Um, especially with addiction in Tolkien, because you could argue the same thing, probably even stretching back into some of the Silmarillion stuff, I would say. Oh, yeah. Um, or even The Hobbit with the Arkenstone. It doesn't have the same corrupting power, but you have these weird kind of ideas of items that cause people to act in ways other than they should. I mean, I think I, I think it's it's quite an interesting it's also a very interesting theological point, no? Like the idea of like money, for example, as a as a corrupting force and, and making people do horrible, horrible things. Um or even the the idea of sex, I guess as well. So so these kind of things link. And and I think you're right, but I think I, I and I need I have yet to read the Silmarillion. I should probably give it a go. But uh, I <laughs> 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 but I think it's off the chain. Is it though? Is it? Is, is it? This is a podcast. Oh. <laughs> oh wait, this is a joke. I don't get. Okay, that's fine. Oh, I just, just off the chain is making me groan. <laughs> no, no, it's just funny because I thought you were just saying it's off the chain, but it must have been a, an in joke, right? That I don't get because I haven't read the Silmarillion. Mm-mm. No, I was just making a bad comment no are there any chains in it uh maybe some jewels some oh jewelry. good well, it's not that i was out of the joke <laughs> no 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 i was just cleaning like, <laughs> yeah. well, that's even better you know what in retrospect this is probably why people don't read books that i recommend <laughs> I books that you recommend yeah but you're also a bit odd i mean <laughs> true i was the person who talked about crimson peak and just went there's just the right amount of incest in this, <laughs> which is a very, <laughs> which is a, a very weird comment. And please edit this out of the podcast <laughs> again. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I can't control this anymore. This we is, shall this see. Is its own monster. No, this is my own ring that I've, <laughs> that I've <laughs> made, like, made for myself and become addicted to, and is going to corrupt me forever and ever. So, what's what's your vice? Incest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't have a scale somewhere. I don't have like a chart on my wall being like, "Well, this book." Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, is there anything anything else? <laughs> Moving swiftly on from incest, was there anything else um, that you guys wanted to add in? Then I don't think so. Besides, uh, I would like to be recommended more books by you, Rachel, at some point. And I loved reading your chapter. I really enjoyed it. I read it at school today. I read it at school today in, in moments when the, I wasn't with the children or even moments when I was with the children. Uh, and I had a great time. So I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. No, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Thank you guys for letting me like speak on the podcast as well. It's, it's really nice to talk about it and, and talk about my like my my fave things about book. And, and, and it's odd because I do feel really passionate about it. I don't know if that comes across in my chapter, but I am like really like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, this is so cool. But I also have to be pseudo-professional, so I can't say that. Um, but I know I'm really, really glad you enjoyed it. 
and you can buy it on Amazon. No, not really. <laughs> uh, only. <laughs> Put it on Amazon, then um, Bezos is just gonna stay, uh, take their rights for it, and you're never yeah, gonna take get the back. rights. Don't let them no, get no, their I'm, rights. No, no, I'm joking. I don't think. I mean, you guys are interested because you're cool. <laughs> But nobody else. I don't think, you know, I don't know how many other people would be interested in reading my chapter. Poor Sarah had to, uh, yeah, read my entire dissertation because I was like, I don't know what to do. She's just like, send it to me. Send it to me, bitch. <laughs> like, thank you. I owe you one. It was super interesting, though. I always say to Sarah, I owe her one and then like never pay her back in anything. Other than maybe being like delightfully <laughs> annoying, is that a thing? You pay me back in unsolicited comments on the choices I've made in my life. <laughs> Hang on, that's only your husband I do that to. <laughs> not you so much. Uh, so I have I have one more question, and this is not really related to madness, but uh, a friend of mine. Uh, sent this to me today. He found it on Twitter, so shout out to Matt Crow for finding this for me. Rebellion Publishing tweets, uh, you're allowed to consume a book's vibes, but to do so you must eat the book. What book do you eat and why? Okay, okay. Uh, I gotta think. Hold on, I'm sitting with my books. Wait, what what mood am I in? Yeah, that was the thing. Because, like, I'll tell you what, like, I guess, also, I feel as if if I answer this question, I'll be judged no matter what I answer. Like, you know what? No. I think probably probably Tales of Earthsea, actually. Ah, interesting, because I had said, when he asked me this, I said the Tombs of Atuan, and I stand by it. It's great vibes. It's great vibes. It's beautiful as well. Like, it just oozes beauty, Ursula Gwynn's writing, in my opinion. And it's it's also incredibly creepy, and I, I want that. Yeah, it's creepy, but it's glorious, but it's uh, somehow very pure. Like, like the Tombs of Atuan is really interesting in that kind of regard as well. I don't know, I'd quite, I'd quite like to consume the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Ooh, adventure! Oh, yeah, I love ships. I love a, a ship one. I think my vibes book would be... A person who actually studied under Le Guin, who I who I love very much. He's he's been my recent sci-fi go-to. Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars. That would be my vibes. Oh yeah, that's on my uh, TBR list right I'm now. I'm obsessed with Kim Stanley Robinson. He's been very important for me in the last year or two, um, politically, <laughs> like the way he writes, um, because he he rejects the idea of dystopia as the only means to understand what we're going through. Like he well, he rejects dystopia in a way because it's it it's comforting. Like, oh, at least it's not as bad as this. But he's a real utopian. He believes in imagining futures which are radically different than ours, but which are hopeful and possible. And so my vibes are Red Mars. That's really cool. I immediately want to read that. That sounds really interesting and really, really good comment on dystopia. That's all from him. I'll send you the article. No, no, no. I, I mean, it, it just sounds it sounds like some smart guy. <laughs> I love him. He did, he studied under briefly, briefly. I think he was at he was at some school in California. One of the, you know your UCs, your Berkeleys, one of those. Um, and she, I think she came and guest lectured when he was uh, a graduate student in the. Oh gosh, I don't, I don't remember. Um, must have been the sixties, the seventies, probably the seventies. So he, I think, is someone who's very, very clearly influenced, especially by like Left Hand of Darkness and Dispossessed. Those are books that I think have a really, really clear through line with the Mars trilogy. The Dispossessed is really interesting as well as as a comparison to the kind of idea of dystopia because they're kind of both not really dystopias in the book. Mm-mm. 
as far as I I kind of gather and and so that's a really nice kind of way yeah I can yeah I think I can see where this is go in a good way I just I saw Moby Dick on my bookshelf and maybe that's my vibes book <laughs> oh actually I might have to change my answer firstly a vibes book never wear Oh, good vibes. Very good vibes. I know people have mixed feelings about Gaiman, but mm. I'm sorry, Neverwhere has the be- one of the best endings ever, like in any book ever. And also Lud in the Mist by Hope Merlees. Mm, I don't know that one either. <gasps> so many good books. I mean, I, n- I noticed that none of the three of us have mentioned Tolkien. And actually, I did have that thought. We like, <laughs> I could pick the Silmarillion, but do I really want my vibes to have that much like wailing no. and gnashing of teeth? <laughs> no, you I don't. I don't think so. Also want a, you want a bit of fun vibes. That's, I think, which is why, I, it's actually, like, why Neverwhere is a good one. Fun vibes. You want a bit of fun vibes. You do. On that note, my friends, should we call it? I think we should. Sounds good. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I've had the best time me too. ever. Genuinely. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 That was super fun. Um, Rachel Rachel is a dear friend of mine here um, who I met, I think, shortly after moving, moving to Scotland. And she's just been really wonderful to have around. And... Yeah, so I'm, I'm super pleased that we could have her on the pod. Um, and actually, I've chosen a slightly connected uh, topic for the Shadow Fact this week, which is Rings of Power and the Unseen. Ooh, wonderful. I'm excited to learn more. Yeah. So the, the starting point was, of course, I was looking through some of the stuff that Rachel had written and I was thinking about the rings and thinking about not just the one ring, but all of them and, you know, how we know the poem uh, about di- the different rings and where they went to and all of that. But there's a lot more cool stuff that we could talk about as well. And specifically kind of this whole invisibility thing, where this idea of rings came from and, and all these bits and pieces. And I think we're on like a fucking... Wagner kick right now mm-hmm. because I found just a lot of stuff about how the one ring is like Alberic's ring um, or or not as Tolkien said as Tolkien wrote in a letter both rings were round and there the resemblance ceases <laughs> <laughs> sassy yeah so I mean I think obviously Tolkien didn't consciously borrow from Wagner um, and there were major differences between the two rings um, and the two plots are quite different and so most notably the central theme in the Lord of the Rings is the quest to destroy Sauron's ring uh, and nobody in the Nibelungen lead uh, even thinks about destroying Alberic's ring. And Tolkien has this idea of the ring as the ruler of other rings and the device enslaving its bearers. And this doesn't really have a counterpart in Wagner at all either. Um, but there are some broad similarities in that so the bearer of the ring can become the master of the world in both cases. Mm. The ring is cursed. It brings misfortune to its bearer. And much like the whole Smeagol-Deagol situation in The Lord of the Rings, in mm-hmm. um, the Nibelungen lead, uh, Fafner kills his brother to get the ring and then he takes it and hides in a cave for many years. Mm. And the driving force in both of these stories is the effort by somebody to get the ring back. These are similarities. Yeah, exactly. And the last the last one, too, is maybe a little bit of a stretch. Or, or maybe not. Tell me what you think. Um, so obviously, in Lord of the Rings, the ring's history ends when its former bearer, Gollum, falls into a volcano. Well, he's holding it and he's burned to death. Men henceforth rule the world with the elves departing. Now, in the Liebelungen lead, the ring's history ends when its former bearer, Siegfried, is burned in a funeral pyre, and Valhalla and all the gods burn too, and so on and so forth. Men henceforth rule the world, and the gods are gone. Oh, shit. You're like, I mean, uh... that's a big one. (laughs) So the rings are round, 
and mm-hmm. all of this stuff as well. And a few other facts. Yeah. But I also think, I mean, <laughs> Tolkien wasn't writing any sort of conscious allegory or anything like that either. So I think much like the rest of his work, there's influence there from his work, influence on what he read, influence on what he studied. And it just it's just there. Mm-hmm. It's just there. Anyway, but to turn to Rings of Power in Tolkien's world specifically, Gandalf um, is the first person, I think, in The Lord of the Rings to really explain what these rings of powers are. And the first thing he says is really a warning. So he says, In Erigion, long ago, many elven rings were made, uh, magic rings, as you call them, and they were, of course, of various kinds, some more potent and some less. The lesser rings were only essays in the craft before it was full grown. And to the elven smiths, they were but trifles. Yet still, to my mind, dangerous for mortals, but the great rings, the rings of power, they were perilous. And so we have this kind of idea of having, I mean, obviously there's the 20 kind of main rings, the three for the elves, seven for the dwarves, nine for the men, and one ring to rule them all. Mm -hmm. But there's also, it sounds like, a number of other rings that were much less powerful and just around. So the idea of a magic ring isn't limited to just these ones. Tolkien, I think Tolkien ties up a lot of his ideas of like magic and power and power especially i think in like the evil corrupting sense Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with with the rings he said in well he talked about um of rings of power in the third age so there's that section of the history of middle earth but in also one of his letters where she wrote to uh, a collins publisher he said that the elves came their nearest to falling to magic in quotes and machinery when making the rings with the aid of sauron's lore they made rings of power and power is an ominous or sinister word in these texts, except when applied to essentially the gods. And the chief power of rings was preventing slow decay or change, which was always viewed as something really regrettable. And there was the preservation of what is desired or loved or the semblance of it. So, for example, you can think of Galadriel protecting Lothlorien with her ring or Elrond protecting Rivendell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I actually wonder, so when Gandalf has the third ring... The thought crossed my mind, this is complete crackpot theory, but I wonder if Gandalf did a little bit of the same with the Shire. (gasps) Ah, I think it's very possible. I like this theory. Yeah, because, I mean, Sarah down the Shipwright might have been protecting something. Yes, the fanfic I I want. But Gandalf, I think, was, if anything, he was protecting the Shire. Because, I mean, the other thing you read in The Lord of the Rings is that nobody really, it's not even that they're not aware of hobbits, because they're not really, but they just don't even know where or what the Shire is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They have no idea. They know where everything is but that. It's like a geographical blot, like how people can't find Rivendell or um, hmm, a Lothorian. So, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to say it checks out, but I think it checks out. <laughs> checks out. I think it checks out. Very cool. Uh, but these rings, especially the three elven rings, enhanced the natural powers of the person who possessed it. And this kind of is approaching magic in a way. And it's also easily corruptible in that once you have this kind of power, you could turn to having maybe a lust for domination or something like that. And then there were other powers as well, more directly derived from Sauron, um, such as rendering someone invisible um, or making things in the invisible world visible. Um, The elven rings, I think it's also important to note, didn't actually confer invisibility. Oh, I did. Yeah, that's true. They wear them all the time. Yeah. And I think I think this is the case with the dwarven rings as well. They don't turn the wearer invisible. And really, um, the dwarven rings just, I mean, as far as you can tell, they actually just help the dwarves get more gold. And then the downfall was actually that they had so much gold that the dragons came. Right, right. 
which is a completely different problem and also problematic with all the things we've been talking about with dwarves recently. Yeah. Uh, it is it is just very interesting the way that all the different rings, um, their power and, and influence is sort of tailored to the group of people to which they've been given. The, the rings of power mm-hmm. that are given to men seem to just magnify sort of their um, lust for power. The mm-hmm. elven rings, because they are, you know, a little more able to resist that sort of evil, they they allow them to just sort of do the morally neutral work of maintaining something like almost like a theme park in a sense. Like, <laughs> so the elven rings let you have a theme park and it could be a water park or it could be like a flying park. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <That's>... Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> well, that, you know, hopefully maybe we will get a theme park here before too long if the rumors are true but anyway continue so you have this rhyme then that we, we've mentioned which is again a light motif as we talked about last time in the lord of the rings and this three rings for the elven kings under the sky seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone nine for mortal men doomed to die one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Now, I've read something really interesting. Mark- Michael Martinez, who uh, has a really interesting blog on Tolkien, we posted something that he wrote uh, last time. He theorizes that the ring rhyme was actually devised during the early years of the Last Alliance. He thinks it was probably composed in Rivendell, uh, maybe during whatever council uh, Gilgalad had with the other rulers of Middle-earth. Cool. And the Nazgul's nature and the possession of the missing nine rings would have to be inferred but by this time, it was pretty certain who actually had the rings. Right. But it wouldn't have been good to let everyone know who possessed the three rings. Mm-hmm. And the ring rhyme says that these three were bestowed upon elven kings. And the rhyme composer could not then have known where the actual three were because um, Elrond and Sirdan were not kings. He just kind of said the elven kings. And he or she must have believed that Gilgalad, Orifer, and Amdir had the three. Hmm. Um, conveniently, all three died in the war. And so no one no one claimed the rings from their bodies. So the elves and their allies must have been thrown into doubt about who actually had the rings. Right after Gilgalad died, yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. After this war, they get kind of lost to history. Yeah. So, I mean, you could actually see it as a, a clever ploy to uh, misdirect and to turn attention away from the people who truly had the rings. Mm, I like it. That's very smart. Yeah. Yeah. He's got some really good stuff on his blogs. Definitely worth looking up. I'll read more. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of invisibility more, though, like I said. So the one ring, and certainly along with the, the nine, I don't know about the seven. I'm not, not sure about that. But they had this uh, ability to tap into the unseen. The one ring, as we know from you know what happens with Frodo and others, they could completely shift the wearer into the spirit world and render the body invisible to mortals and the nine were so strongly under sauron's control that they could cause the wearer to fade and become a wraith Mm -hmm. yes and this this idea of the unseen is in at least in the fellowship of the ring in many meetings i think it's elrond who says that in rivendell there still live here some of his chief foes referring to sauron they do not fear the ring wraiths for those who have dwelt in the blessed realm live at once in both worlds and against both seen and unseen, they have great power. My understanding is that all things in Arda fall into the realm of either being seen or unseen, and unseen are objects or creatures um, that belong to the spirit world or in some ways magic. The Valar, like we know, could exist without uh, a body. And they said, uh, those of the Valar may walk if they will unclad. 
and even then the elves cannot clearly perceive them though they be present sure they get they they don't have to be embodied they exist in the spirit world and that seems kind of like what the spirit those two worlds are right there's being embodied or not being embodied yeah it's kind of the big difference yeah and and then there's also this kind of in a way it's almost a corruption this this wraith world which is part of the unseen uh where the one ring can move its wearer there and this is something so it makes the person seem invisible, but in reality, they're visible to the creatures of the unseen realm. And this is the trouble that Frodo runs into in Weathertop, is the wraiths see him most clearly when he actually puts on the ring. Sure, because they mostly exist in that space. Yeah, exactly. Um, and speaking of Tom Bombadil, or as Rachel's family would say, Tom fucking Bombadil. Tom fucking Bombadil. Tom fucking Bombadil could see Frodo, <laughs> whether he was wearing the ring or not, <laughs> which implies that he could live or at least see in both realms. Yes, he has that ability for whatever reason. Our, our pal Tom. <laughs> the other thing we uh, we know about the Wraith world as well is that the Ring Wraiths are bound to the Unseen world when they don't have a body essentially provided to them by Sauron. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually something that I got into this discussion one time with my uncle-in-law about why the Ring Wraiths were afraid of fire on the Weathertop. Oh, yeah. And why they would be afraid of water, especially running water. Yeah, because they don't go in the water. Well, maybe that water just because of that specific river. I I always interpreted it that it was that river. They also don't cross at Buckleberry Ferry. Oh, shit. That's true. And so there's this, maybe there's this idea that if they're... I thought it maybe just their horses. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I mean, there's a very old idea that demons and spirits and things like that can't cross running water. Right. Um, So there's that. But when it comes to the Ringwraith specifically, I wonder if there's this idea that they're either much weaker or it's very difficult for them to move from place to place if they don't have a physical form. And so being set on fire would actually be quite bad for them. I mean, they won't die, but it will be a severe inconvenience and probably hurt like hell. Painful. They might experience some form of, some form of pain, this process. I mean, Gandalf sort of goes through it, right? I mean, yeah. Doesn't he kind of when he dies and then is brought back? He experiences, you know, he describes what is like awful untold pain, right? Yeah. Just suffering and then all of a sudden the light kind of goes out and then he has this sort of mystical experience and he's back. I don't know. I mean, obviously, what I'm saying is that he also seems to experience that sort of pain that you describe, which comes with unembodiment and reembodiment. Yeah, exactly. As the Good Omens book would call it, discorporation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, thinking about the running water as well, this kind of ties into something else that I was thinking about uh, with Tolkien and this idea of the unseen. This idea of there being an unseen world that one can pass into somehow is, uh, I think, fairly common in folklore. So, for example, fairies and elves and less friendly beings than them kind of move between our world and their own realm as almost like a parallel dimension. Mm hmm. Yes, it reminds me of a lot of his non non um his non uh, Middle Earth writing, right? Yeah, and it, when he was even first conceiving of the elves, actually, he kind of referred to them as fairies, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this idea yes. of like almost like the fairy fairyland of Celtic myth, which was not a nice or pleasant place, right? It was scary. Yeah, and so I wonder if I mean this is all just kind of stuff that ties to other stuff as we were talking about earlier but this idea of having uh, an unseen realm with um kind of a, a a spirit a spirit realm essentially and then beings from this realm also not being able to do some things like cross running water i don't know hmm. but anyway i just i thought it was really interesting that there's this connection specifically between rings and magic and 
other worlds and, hmm. and all this together. And you don't really see, you don't really see, I mean, aside from Gandalf, who doesn't really count, and neither does, well, neither do any of the wizards, actually, because they are essentially angels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No one else can do anything that's really properly magic. Little magics. Little magics. But for the elves and stuff, like, it's craft. Yeah, so Arwen with the raising of the river. Yeah, they're just good at stuff. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, I mean, there's there's stuff, it's stuff that, like, I mean, sure, you could maybe say it's magic that Galadriel captures the light of a star and bottles it, but... That's just being really good at glass. That's just being really good at glass. Yeah, they're just craftspeople. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is really beautiful, actually. I like it better that way. How, who among us haven't seen something that someone made and thought that it was magic? Yeah. Uh, and this actually reminds me of a meme that uh, one of my friends just <laughs> literally just sent me as we were doing the podcast. There's getting a lot of shout outs. So shout out to Jen McLean for sending me this. <laughs> and she says, it's really sweet how Sauron wants to rule all creatures and bring darkness to all of Middle Earth. But he also takes some time out of his wretched schedule to write a little poem and engrave it on homemade jewelry. We all need a hobby. He has a hobby. Yeah, it's just jewels. Yeah. Classic hobby to have. Well, that was wonderful. On that, I think, shall we call it a pod? I think we should call it a pod, my friend. Until next time. Until next time. And we will talk to you all soon. Yeah. Talk to you guys soon. We'll have more. Eventually. We don't know when. (laughs) Don't ask us. (laughs) Uh, Keep it it safe. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.